0: Heavenly Father, we just come before you, Lord, tonight in this beautiful house. And on this day, we do thank you for the rain that you've given us this weekend. We thank you, Lord, for the sun coming out again. We thank you, God, for all the blessings of life. Thank you for your protection and provision for us in every area. And God, I thank you that you've given us the strength to be able to come together tonight. We pray for those who are not able to be here, Lord. We ask your blessings upon them. We ask, God, that you would restore them, those that are sick. Father God, that you would bless them and heal them, Father, right now, because you are Yahweh Rophe, the Lord who heals us. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that that's part of your beautiful covenant blessings to us. Lord, I pray for our time together tonight, Father. I'm just a humble servant, Lord. And I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. So I ask you, Jesus, to anoint me by your precious Holy Spirit, And enable me to deliver the words you've put in my heart and to deliver them with your heart in mind. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will take over, come and flood in this room. I ask that you would bless every one of these, your people, your saints, Lord, that they would just be filled tonight with more of the Holy Spirit. They would be filled with your word, they would be filled with your presence, and they will each receive exactly what you have ordained for each and every one of them to take home with them. I pray that you will feed them from your book, The Living Bread. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome to all of you. Welcome back. And uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. And we do have a lot of ground to cover. I am going to clarify one thing, though. I had myself a little note about the music. I do like Southern Gospel music sometimes, and I can certainly worship with it. But I was glad to have Contemporary Christian when it came on the stage. I was excited about that. So I just thought I would throw that little nugget out and clarify that for us. All right. Last week... We, um, we looked at the last days and how we know we're in the last days is because Christ gave us that element, that, um, that one event that he says starts the last generation. And that means we're in the last of the last days because Peter said we were in the last days in Acts chapter 2. So they've been going on since that time. But we know that we are part of that last generation because we've seen the fig tree bloom and blossom, and that is the nation of Israel being reborn as a nation. And we talked about that last week. Okay, now, as we go through this book, recognize that we're trying to take what I did in 46 lessons, when I went in depth through this book, and condensed it into a 12-week study. So that means a lot of the stuff that I taught before has got to be condensed down into capsule form. So you're getting the cream of the crop. Um, these weekly studies will be like, I don't know if any of y'all lived in the days, but I did, <laughs> tells my age when we used to get our milk delivered to our house in glass bottles. And it had the teeny-weeny little thing of cream on the top. And all the rest was the milk. And of course, you know, you'd shake up the bottle to get the cream and the milk all mixed up. But my point in saying that is, what you're getting tonight is like the little tiny slithers of cream (laughs) that are on the top, and there's a whole lot more in that bottle that I just can't get to in these 12 weeks. Um, but I am going to be doing an in-depth study in my Wednesday night class, so for any that would like to participate in that, you are welcome to join us later on when we begin that, and I'll put it in the bulletin when that's going to start. So anyway, right now and in, we're involved in um, one study, and then we've got another study or so that we're going to do before we get to that, but I will be doing that later, hopefully later this year. All right, so you're getting the small cream on the top, so you're going to have to buckle up because we're going to take off, and we're going to go. One other note I wanted to make before I get into talking more about the book and the study um, and moving into tonight's lesson is this. I call Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 the bookends of the Bible, and the whole problem... In between is Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation 20 and it all began with now the serpent in Genesis 3 1 and so from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 20 we deal with this thing called the serpent who is Satan but the wonderful thing is that eventually in Revelation 21 and 22, God is restoring us back to Eden, which we first got introduced to in Genesis 1 and 2. God's going to get rid of the serpent once and for all. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we have a beautiful thing of eternity to look forward to. And I can't wait. The Bible tells us so much more about a lot of the things in Revelation than what we've ever realized before. There's a ton of scripture that tells us about the millennial reign of Christ, but it's not found in the book of Revelation. It's found elsewhere. And so we have to look elsewhere in scripture to find those things. And that's why I told you last week the title of this is Back to the Future, because we're going back to the other parts of scripture to fill in the details that help us understand the book of revelation all right there are much more topics in this than what we're going to be able to cover and it's worthy of in-depth study so please know that you know there's a lot more here than what I can get into in any particular one lesson this class is not exhaustive we cannot cover everything in detail the way it should be covered. It is not exclusive. I recognize that there are many others that could teach this class a whole lot better than I could. I don't consider myself some expert in this area but God called me to do it a long time ago and he gave me fresh eyes to do it and he gave me a path to do it and that is to let scripture interpret scripture. So that's why we go back into other places in Scripture to fill in the details. Because we are devoted to letting Scripture interpret Scripture. I'm devoted to being a good steward. I'm devoted to studying and showing myself approved that I may rightly divide the word of truth. And I want Scripture to tie in together and it all be what Paul calls sound doctrine. And so that's what I intend to deliver to you to the best of my ability. Please notice that in this study we will cover some controversial topics and things that you've probably heard different ideas about or maybe thought some things yourself and you have your own interpretation of something or you've been taught one thing. Some of those things will be very valid and we'll find the scriptures tell us the truth about those things and it all supports what we've heard. Some of those might challenge us a little bit to rethink some of those things we may have heard. But in all of those things that could be controversial, one thing I've always tried to do is to handle them with care and with respect. Because a lot of this stuff in Revelation is yet to happen. So therefore, there's not a person alive that can stand in a place and say it will be this way. They can say, the best I can tell you based on Scripture and my understanding of Scripture, I expect it to be this way. But a lot of this stuff we cannot guarantee and say definitively because it's yet to happen. And as we have found out with much of Scripture and what has already happened, God will a lot of times throw us out of our comfort zone and he'll blow our minds with doing it differently than what we originally thought it was going to happen. That's part of why they missed Jesus when he came on the scene because the Jews had this idea in their box of who they we're looking for <clears throat> to be their Messiah and he didn't fit in their box and so they rejected him and thought he was a blasphemer because he wasn't what they expected So, my point in saying that is I'm going to give you the beef from God's Word the best that I can, but I understand that some of these things we will talk about in coming weeks are controversial and they may or may not happen the way you and I have heard or been taught or thought of ourselves. So, all of those, please understand that we just give grace and we handle them with respect and with love. And in all things, we want to have love as our as our base and as that thing that unites us, okay? So we're not here to argue over any of these topics. I'm simply here to tell you I believe, okay, this is the topic and this is what I found in Scripture that the Word tells us about it. And so therefore, I formulate this particular opinion or whatever based on Scripture. And then we'll go from there and we'll give each other grace and respect otherwise. This is not entire, either. I cannot answer all of our questions. Many of these, like I said, are futuristic, but I will do the best I can to unravel the topics for you and for me and tell us what the Bible does have to say about that, all right? And so this is going to be a thorough working through of the book and seeking and searching God for the understanding of it. Dr. David Reagan is um, one of the prophecy experts that can could teach this far better than I can. But he is one that I've, I've heard him say this before. He's read through the book of Revelation over and over and over again, many, many times. And he's devoted his life to a lot of this, this kind of teaching and this understanding. And one of the things he said was, he said, every time you pray, you go to read the scriptures, go to read the book of Revelation, pray and ask God to give you understanding of it. And he does that every time he reads through it. So I thought I would share that with you. So what we're going to cover tonight, we're going to talk about several topics from chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Revelation. The first one I'd like to talk with you about is found in the very first verse of this book. And it says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. First of all, I want to point out one thing to you. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. John happens to be the apostle that the Lord gave it to to write it. But the whole book is designed to reveal Jesus Christ. Christ, and we're gonna see that as we go through here. We're not gonna focus so much on the Antichrist as we are on the real Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it talks about the last last part of that verse says things which must shortly take place. Now we can look at that phrase shortly take place and we can kind of misunderstand it because we're going okay well john wrote that two thousand years ago in the 90s ad so that don't seem like shortly take place to me does it (laughs) seems like there's quite a bit of time in between that so and god does have a different time frame than we do so with him a thousand years is, is a day we're told so you know it's not not too often i mean not too long for him but what that phrase if you actually study it out what the words mean is this. It's talking about this concept. The best way I can describe it is pregnancy and labor and delivery. That's exactly what he's talking about here. A pregnant woman (coughs) does not have to question whether she's going to have a baby or not. She knows she's going to have it. She knows it's going to come. What she doesn't know is when it's going to come. That's the part that she can be taken, taken off and, and uh, not understand. She doesn't know the exact timing, but she knows it's coming. And that's what he's talking about here. In this phrase, he's saying these things must shortly take place. What he's telling us is once a woman who is pregnant, once labor begins, it will continue very rapidly. It will grow in its intensity and it will not stop until that baby is born. That's what he's saying here. Once these things begin to happen and real labor comes about, it's going to continue and they're going to come to pass rapidly. And they're going to increase in intensity. That's what that means. So if you, if you know, all of you ladies that have had children, you know what I'm talking about. When you're pregnant, you can have what's called Braxton Hicks, right? And those are not real labor pains that bring the baby, are they? But what do they tell you? It's coming soon. They tell you that it's going to be soon. It's the same thing with what we're beginning to see when you read your newspaper articles, and we're beginning to see everything Jesus talked about that's starting to come to pass. He called it the beginning of sorrows, and that word literally is talking about the beginning of birth pangs. So I believe that right now, currently, the church is in what's called a Braxton Hicks stage, if you want to name it that. We're in that place where we're beginning to see those little Braxton Hicks contractions kind of come along. And what they're telling us is that this thing's wrapping up, and we are close to the end, and it's going to come soon. And when that final labor begins, it's going to come quickly, and it's going to come intensely. It's going to grow in its intensity, and then the end is going to come exactly like God said, just like a woman ends up having that baby once real labor begins. So that is what that is talking about um, and for you to understand. So the woman that's having these Braxton Hicks knows that it's near, she, knows, she doesn't know exactly when it's coming, but she begins to get... She's got her suitcase packed. She's, she's getting serious about this thing right, right? Because she knows she's in the season when it could be any day now, right? She knows at any moment now her water could break. She knows she's in that season, so she knows she better be ready That is the message that the church needs to take away from this. We are in the season where those birth pangs have started, that Braxton Hicks has started, and we don't know exactly when Jesus is about to come back, and these things are going to come into being full-fledged and in intensity, but we know we're close. We know we're very, very close, and literally now Jesus' return for his church could happen any day. Could happen before we finish this service. Could happen before we finish this study. And we need to be ready because Jesus is coming soon. And that's what this is talking about. He tells us to be ready. In all of his teachings about that, the Lord started out with one thing. He said, watch out and beware that you are not deceived. There's a lot of deception going on right now. And then in all of the passages throughout the the Gospels where he talked about these signs, he said to watch and pray and be ready. And so that's where we want to live right now. We want to be ready. We are so close, and these beginnings of these birth pangs are telling us that. All right. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and so our goal is to see Jesus through this book. And that's what I want to point out to you as we go through here. Now, for an outline of this book, turn over and look at... Well, in my page I have to turn over. It's verse 19 of that same chapter. John himself, Jesus, actually is speaking during this time. And he gives us the outline for us to follow in this book. And it's in this verse. And he says, Write the things which you have seen... The things which are, and the things which will shortly take place after this, will take place after this. So right there, he delivers the outline. It's the things that John saw, which is chapter 1, and that is the vision of the risen Christ, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. And then the current ministry of the risen Christ um, is part of that, and then the things that are or the churches that's chapter 2 and 3 and then the things that will be comprise the bulk of this book chapters tw- four through 23 through 22 those are all the things that will be those are the future and coming things turn back just for a moment and I want to pick up verse 3 because in verse 3 of chapter 1 It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And I want to point out something here as we go forward. This is the only book in scripture that I know of that defines a specific blessing for those who will read it. And yet, as I mentioned last week, it's one of the books that we read the least in all of scripture the one that carries a blessing on it for those who will read it hear it and treasure or keep it and yet we tend to avoid it sometimes but he specifically says that there's a blessing here and he lists that blessing for the people the person who will do three things read it hear it and keep it Now that word literally is talking about treasuring it or guarding it. Part of that understanding of that is to defend its truth. Much of what Revelation teaches us and much of the Word of God and much of the Christian faith is under attack today. And we need to be keeping these things, holding them treasuring them, and defending them when necessary, okay? So that's part of what that is telling us about. All right, so now we know the outline. First chapter tells us about the vision of the risen Christ in heaven, the things that John saw. And then in chapter two through three, tells us the, the things that are now, currently. It's what's called the church age, We're going to get into that more in a minute and then beginning in chapter 4 through the rest of the book are the things which will take place after this. So let's talk about chapter 1 for a minute. When we see this vision of Christ and I hope most of you were able to read it um, on your own because I'm not going to be able to read the swaths of the scripture when we come together. But in here we see a, a picture of what John saw when he saw Christ exalted and ministering in the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple that is up there. If you'll remember, when God gave the pattern for the tabernacle to Moses, he said, you write what from the pattern you've seen that I've shown you on the mountain. And that was the heavenly tabernacle that Moses was able to see into that heavenly tabernacle. And We'll talk more about that later on but Jesus Christ, who is called by the author of Hebrews as our great high priest, we will see him actually functioning in this chapter. And he's doing several things and we're given his titles. We're given several titles. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He calls himself the one who was dead and is alive and lives forevermore. He gives himself different titles in this chapter. And each one of those are beautiful and meaningful. I don't have time to to get into each one, but they're worthy of their own study. He is the high priest, and we know that by this verse. If you'll look with me down to verse 12 and 13, then it says, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. That's the verse that tells us he is functioning as high priest because it's based upon the pattern from the Old Testament. And the high priest had garments that he had to wear. And one of them was a blue robe that went all the way down to his feet, And it had bells and pomegranates all around the hem of it. And those represented the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. And so this is telling us he has that garment, and it's also telling us about he has this band, this golden band around his chest, and that was part of the high priest's robe as well. It was the breastplate and where all the stones of the children of Israel were placed and so forth in, in that breastplate. So that's what he's talking about here. He sees Jesus ministering as high priest in the heavenly temple among the lampstands. All right? So, what are the lampstands? Well, guess what? We don't have to wonder. All we have to do is look at verse 20 of that same chapter. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. All right? Now, these seven churches, we're going to go through them real quick. And when I did it before, we did we took one church per lesson, and so we went in-depth about all of them. But the Lord took me in a different direction with this, and so I'm going to give you just a brief overview of the seven churches. First of all, let me tell you, they were literal churches of John's day. Most of them were in the area that we would call now Turkey. In that area, it was called Asia Minor in the scriptures. And so they, they were literal churches. They were also prophetic of the church age. Now when you hear that phrase the church age it just simply is talking about the time period between Acts chapter 2 after the resurrection of the Lord when he established the church and founded the church and all the way up until the time of his return for the church. Okay that whole time period is what we call the church age and so it's now been going on for about 2,000 years. So it's from that time period that we see that. So these were prophetic of the church age. And if you study through the scriptures, if you study um, Revelation study from Chuck Missler, I know he he goes through each one, and he gives details about how these were prophetic of the various church ages and, and the different churches from each age. So he'll talk about like the early church of the first century as the church of Ephesus, for instance, and then he goes on and he shows how how they grow in sequence, prophetically, in a sense, throughout church history. Then it has also application to churches in all generations. In any time period in in Christianity, there would be some, uh, some churches that would be identified, for instance, like Ephesus, that has lost their first love. Or some like Laodicea that have become lukewarm. Okay? Then they also have personal applications to the individual. We have to examine our lives to see, for instance, if we are apostate, if we are lukewarm, if we individually have lost our first love, etc. When we go through chapter 2 and 3, we'll see some commonalities of these seven churches. I love how Chuck Misler calls these their report cards. I like that. And some of us, it's been a while since we've been in school. (laughs) But I never will forget being in school, and I could make straight A's on everything and make a C or D in conduct. (laughs) And they'd tell me, they'd say, you couldn't keep your mouth shut. And I'll never forget, my brother, I'd bring my report card home. My brother, he was crippled. He was in a wheelchair, but I loved him dearly. And I, I'd bring my report card home, and he'd, he'd call me Shorty. I don't know why, but he'd call me Shorty. He'd say, he'd say Shorty, you cheated. Shorty, you cheated. They ain't nobody make a straight A's in the math. <laughs> he said, you cheated. But we all remember report cards from our early days. So each one of these seven churches are getting a report card from the Lord. And Christ is giving them, and in these report cards, he gives them a title. Each church will have a specific title that Christ identifies himself as to that church. They will also be an analysis of their status. He gives them the good, the bad, and the ugly. He tells it like it is. And each of these will tie to what he has to say to that church. So, for instance, the title that he gives to the church in Smyrna is that he is the one who lives, was dead, and lives forevermore. And if you read the church in Smyrna, the church in Smyrna represents the persecuted church. And many of them had to die for their faith. They were martyred for their faith and so his message to them was hold fast and be faithful to the end even if you are killed I am the one who died but am alive forevermore and I will be standing on the other side when you are killed ready to give you a crown for your reward. So, you see, it ties to what he was, his message to that church. Smyrna was the persecuted church, and many of them would be martyred. That represents the time period where you had Nero and Domitian and all of those, and they were killing Christians. And so Christ identifies himself with a title that ties to their status And the message he had for them. So that's just one example. So he was saying basically, if you have to die for me, don't worry about it. Because I'm alive and I'm on the other side and I'm waiting with a crown for you. I will be with you through this thing. He gives commendations or rebukes or both to all seven of these churches. Two of them got no rebukes at all. They had perfect report cards. He gives them a call to action, whatever it is that they needed to do. Some of them, it was to repent and return to him. Some of them, it was hold fast and don't lose heart, just keep on going. Some of them, it was be faithful to the end, and I'll be with you. He gives a promise to the overcomer. In each case, now this is, this is hopeful, in each case overcoming is an option. Even if you got a bad grade, overcoming is an option. Do you know what that tells us? There is hope. You don't have to stay in that situation. There's an alternative. You can repent. You can return. There's hope. You can be an overcomer. He tells them all, let him who has an ear. And he's talking there about an open ear versus the shutting of the ear. The scriptures in other places talk about those who shut their ears. They don't want to hear. And it reminds me of a little grandchild I had. And he ran over one time because he didn't like what I told him. So he went over and he did. He didn't want to hear what granny and nanny had to say. He wanted to shut me out. That's what it's talking about. Let him who has an open ear, not shutting their ear off, but one who will listen, who will tune and perk up their ear to hear him. All right? Now, let's talk about the different churches very, very quickly because I want to get to what the Lord really showed me that he wants to cover tonight. In Ephesus, they had mostly A's. Their problem was they lost their first love. Chuck Messler defines it this way, and I love this phrase. That's why I put it in here. They were too busy with the business of the king to spend time with the king. And boy, all of us, all of us that are involved in ministry, we can easily fall into that trap. We can easily find ourselves always reading the Bible because we're studying for a lesson. Not because we're enjoying sweet fellowship with the Lord. And so the church in Ephesus, they were just simply, that was the only thing he had a mark against them on, was that they had forgotten their simple love relationship with Jesus. They had forgotten that he was their lover, their husband, and he wanted to spend time with them. And they were busy doing good things. They were all doing the work of the kingdom. They were doing the things that God gave them commendations on that are good things that God wants us doing. But they had just lost that intimate time with him, that first love. Smyrna, their report card got all A's. They were the persecuted church. And the exhortation to them, as I mentioned earlier, was to hold on and keep the faith even if you have to die for me. Pergamus represents the compromising church. They were the church that wanted to mix and marry with the world. They were trying to have the world and the church too. They weren't denying the world, rather they were making themselves a friend of the world. And the book, the Bible tells us that when we do that we make ourselves an enemy of God if we make ourselves a friend of the world. Thyatira, they represent the corrupt church. They had a full-fledged mixing of pagan and Christian things together. They allowed the spirit of Jezebel to teach and seduce them into idolatry and immorality. Sardis, Sardis represented the dead church. They appeared to be alive, but in reality, they were dead. They needed to wake up and become diligent watchers again. Philadelphia was the alive church. They were the church of brotherly love, on fire, and in love with Jesus, and they got no bad grades. They had all A's. Laodicea represents the lukewarm church. Those who were trying to ride the fence. I want some of God, but some of the world They were the ones that were not sincere and not sold out. It's interesting because Jesus is ministering in chapter 1 among seven lampstands. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because we're fixing to go to Exodus chapter 25 in just a few minutes. Because that represents what we're talking about now. What God is talking about here with the lampstands is the menorah from the Old Testament, and to understand more about the lampstands, we're going to look at the menorah from the Old Testament, but it's interesting that the high priest was given the responsibility, Jesus is our high priest ministering among the lampstands in chapter one, high priest was given the responsibility to trim the lamps. He did it every day, he did it in the morning, and he did it in the evening, and in my research, I have found that they would do, there was a grouping of them. They would do five at one time and they would reserve a couple and they would do those later in the morning and in the evening. And I personally believe that there is an application. Now, this is where I'm going to tell you what I personally believe from my understanding of Scripture. You may or may not agree with it, but this is what I believe. I believe that what this represents for us is that that I think that the two that were reserved for the end also can be spoken of for that last generation of believers that will be alive when we see all these things fulfilled. The two last churches were these two Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now what that tells me, I personally believe is that in the end, when Jesus returns, there will be a church of Philadelphia. There will be a church that is alive and sold out and looking for Jesus to come back and they are alive and in love with him. But by the same token, there will also be a church of Laodicea that is lukewarm, that's neither hot nor cold. The question is, which one will we be? Will we be sold out to Jesus? Will we be in love with him? Will we be a part of the church of Philadelphia? Or will we be a part of the Laodicean church? All my life, I've heard it taught that it will only be the Laodicean church. But I'm here to tell you, God will always have a remnant. Always he will have a remnant. There will be people alive who are loving his appearing, like Paul talked about. And I choose to be in that number. And I believe our pastor chooses for our church to be in that number. Isn't that right, Pastor Todd? We want to be ready to go when the Lord returns. We want to be in love with him. We want to be a church that's on fire in our love with him. And so that's my point in saying that. Now let's talk about these lampstands. Read with me in Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 39 or 31. Excuse me and we're going to go there now. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. We're given here the instructions that Moses wrote down that he was given about the making of this menorah, this lampstand. So I brought one with me. This is the menorah, okay? And I'll point out a few things about that as we go along. It says here, You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch. With an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstands. Their knobs and their branches shall be all of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talon of pure gold with all these utensils, and see to it that you make them, all of the pieces, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. All right, so we're given information here about this menorah. Some versions call it a candlestick. We might think of it more like a candelabra. Looks more like a candelabra type thing for us. And so this is just one rendition of it, and it's a small rendition. The, The real one weighed about 100 pounds was about five and a half feet tall and they made steps to go up in front of it so they could go up and reach up to the the lights so that they could um, trim the wicks and they had to relight it with the oil and you know those kinds of things in trimming The lamps is what it was called, and that's what Christ is doing in chapter 1. He's trimming the lamps. He's ministering among his lampstands, which represents his seven churches, just like you'll see that there were seven lamps on this. There were three on this side, three on that side, and one in the middle. Okay? Now, right here, there's a couple of other things that this tells us. First, it tells us that this thing had to be all of pure gold. That speaks of deity in Scripture. Tells us it all had to be of hammered work. Now that's interesting because how did they get the nails through Jesus' wrists? They hammered them, didn't they? And that speaks to me of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross when it talks about it was to be of hammered work. It's pointing to that. See, we have to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament function perfectly together like hand and glove. What What's talked about in the Old Testament is pointing to the fulfillment of it in the New. So even right here, there's a little thing tucked in there about how it's going to be accomplished. And it's going to be accomplished through the finished work of Jesus Christ, which was when he laid down and let them hammer his hands and his feet to that cross. Speaks of the ornaments and the flower or flowers or the beauty and glory of this thing. And that speaks to me of the Holy Spirit. So we see here even a view of the Trinity just in these descriptions about this menorah. Verse 36 speaks of that finished work of the cross again that we just read there. That hammered work, it all had to be of the hammered work. It's all tied to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything points to that. Verse 37, the task of the priest daily was to arrange these or to trim these so that what? They would give light. In the holy place, in the tabernacle, when they built it, there were no windows at all. And there was the, the door, the veil at the front of it, and then there was the heavy veil that separated between the most holy place and the holy place. And so without... The lampstand, there was total darkness in that room, no light at all. It would be as if we had Calvin now, just flip all the lights off and it would be total darkness in here and we couldn't see anything. And so the lampstand's purpose was to shed light in a dark place. I'm gonna say that again. The lampstand's purpose is to shed light in a dark place. Who did Jesus just define for us is the lampstand, the church. So the church's job is to what? Shine light in a dark place. That is, in simple terms, the job of the church. Give light. Give light. Paul defines it this way. He tells us that it's the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul defines it when he wrote to the Corinthians. He called it the glorious, the light of the glorious gospel. And gospel just means good news. There's good news about Jesus Christ. And I'm fixing to show you some of that through an illustration in just a moment. The church is the only light. In this dark world and if we're not shining then guess what the darkness overtakes right and it doesn't take a lot of light to at least break through some darkness does it if we had all the lights out in here and I had just one candle and I lit it it would dispel some if I had a hundred candles and we lit them it would dispel a lot wouldn't it are you beginning to see how this thing works all around the world God has churches everywhere in all kinds of denominations in every country in all kinds of places and their purpose is one thing shine light it's to give light to the darkness in that place you remember many of you remember The childhood song, this little light of mine. Y'all remember? I'm going to let it shine. What did Jesus say about that? In Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify him. Your Father, who is in heaven. You see, the shining of our light is not to draw attention to us. It's to draw attention to Him. My job, by the calling of God, my job is to point you to Him. It's to shine the light to Him. It's to guide you to Him. Not to me. And that's the job of the church. All right. When they would trim the lamps, the light was to burn continually. It was never to go out. The light of the church and the light of you and I as individual members of the church is never to go out. And if you can examine yourself and you find that it's grown a little bit dim, then go to the Father and say, Father, give me a fresh kindling. I need to be rekindled. I need to burn brighter again. And maybe that's some of us tonight. Maybe we need to do that. The purpose of that menorah is one thing, to give light. And it was to burn continually. Jesus called himself what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. As a matter of fact, I want to read that passage to you. Because it's going to go along with the illustration that I'm fixing to do in just a moment. And then we'll close with this. (laughs) Look with me in John chapter 8, those of you that would like to follow along. I'm going to read John chapter 8, verses, well, let's see. Yeah, it's verse 1 through 12. John chapter 8 verse 1 through 12. And it says "But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and when they had set her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, Notice this, very next verse, what does Jesus say? Then Jesus spoke to them again, talking about her, she was there, and the others, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, in my particular version of the Bible, which is New King James, that is put together as a section now that has been added by the translators but I saw something whenever I realized that and I went it fits it fits because he's just forgiven a guilty sinner and he's told her go and sin no more now the very next verse what does he do he tells her how to do that follow me I'm the light if you follow me and you let my light stay with you and shine on your path, you're not going to walk in darkness. You won't get stuck in this situation again. You will be able to go and sin no more. That's how you do it. You follow him and you walk in his light. And David, the writer of Psalm 119, we assume to be David, spoke of that. And he said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto to my path. So how do we live free? How do we live victorious? We do it because the scriptures give us that light. The scriptures tell us how to live that way. Okay, once we have repented of our sin and received him and his forgiveness. I wanna leave us with one thing here just as a form of an illustration. Because it's our job, we know, to lead people to Christ. And so I wanna try to illustrate something. One of the things that I like to do if someone is new to the Bible and new to Christianity is, like Pastor, to encourage them in the Gospels. Um, I usually tell people to start in the book of John and read all of John and, you know, maybe read all of the Gospels after that. And then the next book you need to read is the book of Romans. Romans is Paul's treatise on on the Christian faith. And it is broken down in in a sense, into sections, so to speak. Chapters 1 through 5 deal with justification by faith alone. Chapters um, 6 through 8 deal with what we call sanctification, getting, getting that sin cleansed out of us and living free of sin. And then 9 through 11 deal with Israel. And then on in the, the end of the book, there's more instructions for godly living and various, various topics that are covered there. But Romans speaks to us of this concept that is called justification by faith alone. And that's what all of chapters 1 through 5 is teaching us about. And so I want to play act a scenario before you. And I write dramas. I have directed dramas. I've never done a drama myself. (laughs) So I'm going to read my script, if you don't mind but I want to play act something because as I was praying about this lesson, you know, I thought that I'd just be pulling some things from my other study and then whenever I got into this, God just took me in different directions so far and he's caused me to go differently than what I thought I would go and he does that a lot of times. And um, so I'm going to follow his lead and do what I believe he's led me to do and so I wanna set this up and so I have a couple of different chairs here and I want you to understand this because it teaches us exactly what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 1 through 5. You can summarize it in this kind of setting. It's a courtroom setting, so I want you to understand this, all right? I'm not an attorney in any means. Never worked in a legal office. I don't understand all that stuff. My attorney stuff is from Matlock. I watch some Matlock. (laughs) That's all the credit I can give is from watching Matlock. (laughs) So anyway, but literally speaking, Romans 1 through 5 is a courtroom setting. You have God, the judge, and we'll just pretend that he's right here on the end of this. And then over here, you have a prosecutor. Who's that? He's called later in Revelation, the accuser of the brethren, the devil. He sits over here. And then over here on this side, you got defendant. Who is that? Me, you, each and every one of us. This is guilty sinner, the one that's been caught in the act, the one that's been brought to trial. And then over here, who you got? You got Jesus. You got a defense attorney that's going to take charge here in just a moment. So we have a a court in session now, all right? And so a bailiff comes out, says, case of God's holy law versus, and this is just a fictitious name, Anna Jerome. Okay, so we're going to play this, act this out here. So the judge stands up here, sits down, whatever, and he says, prosecutor, you may present your case. So over here we got prosecutor. He says, sir, in my case, I will show, I'll stand up so you can see me. Sir, in my case, I will show beyond any reasonable doubt that this sinner is worthy of punishment by death and is guilty of all charges filed against her. And then he comes with a stack of papers, and he has them on his desk, and he says, flips through them, and he says, I've got all the evidence right here. Got documents, dates, times, places, names. I can tell you everything she's ever done. It's all right here. It's all right here in this stack, every bit of it. I've got it documented. So he says, I can prove to you through these documents that I will submit as evidence to her many crimes she is guilty and worthy of death. So he begins his case, and I'm just taking a few spots from it. Judge, in your holy law... Commandment number one and two. You said that that you were not to make any images or have any other gods before you. None in your place, O judge. Well, she did. She made gods of pleasure, gods of sexual sins, immodesty, gods of laziness, gods of gossip, gods of pride, egotism, materialism. In your holy law, Judge, commandment number three, you said don't take your name in vain, Oh, Judge. Well, she's had total disrespect for your name. I can count all the times she's had disregard for your holiness. She's cursed you. She's carefully referred to you. In your law, O Judge, you said in commandments four through ten, and I have evidence to prove she's dishonored her parents, she's lied, She's stolen. She's cheated on her taxes. She's taken things that weren't hers. She's committed adultery in her heart. Your own son said that and defined it. Oh, yeah, she's coveted. I got her so busy with a super job and career, she wanted to keep up with the Joneses. So she covered. She coveted. There's no way she's going to be able to deny these charges, and I've got the evidence to prove it. So he completes his case. And he says, I rest my case. Judge says, does that complete your claims against this defendant? Prosecutor says, yes, sir, I rest my case. And he snickers, because he's got her dead to rights, Okay. So then the judge, over here, turns to the defendant, who may be weeping because she's had all these charges read against her, and she knows she's guilty. She knows she's condemned. And so the judge turns to her and says, The prosecutor has raised these charges against you. What do you say for yourself? And the defendant says, I have no words, Your Honor. I'm guilty of all these charges. I have done all these things, and I stand condemned before you, O holy and righteous judge. So then the defense attorney, he's been over here, he's been quiet through all of it. He's remained silent through all of this exchange. And he looks up at the judge and he says, Your Honor, may I have a moment with my client, please? Okay, give me just a minute. And the judge nods. And so he turns and he speaks quietly to her and he says, Dear Anna, I recognize you are guilty as charged but do you know who I am your friend who introduced you and led you here to me they brought you to me so I could offer you an answer a solution a defense I know you're guilty and the judge recognizes your guilt but let me tell you about what I can offer you I am the son of God who became a human being just like you. I lived a life like you, fraught with all the same passions and desires and temptations that you have faced. But because I did not sin, I could be a substitute for you and all like you who have sinned. You see, when I was born, I came to earth and was born a human being for one purpose and one purpose only to die as your substitute, Anna. At 33 years old, knowing my time had come, I allowed soldiers to arrest me, to beat on me, to spit and whip me. I carried a heavy crossbeam on my back up a hill. I then laid it down upon that wooden cross and I let Roman soldiers hammer three spiked nails into my wrist and into my feet. Blood pouring out and down that cross. And then they stood it up and I experienced excruciating pain in that moment. But dear Anna, do you know why I did that? You see dear one, I saw your picture as I lugged that wooden cross up that hill. I saw your picture, your face, when I was hanging there. I knew this day would come when you would sit in this defendant's seat. You, Anna, were on my mind that day. And so, I died. I willingly paid the death sentence that you deserved, my dear Anna. And I did it because I love you. And I want to have a love relationship with you. If you will accept my invitation and my offer that I extend to you today. Yes, dear Anna, you are guilty. And you are worthy of receiving a death sentence. But I died, and I paid that price in your place. You can now go free and be acquitted of all charges if you will truly repent. And that means turn around. Stop walking the way you've been walking. And follow me in the way that I will lead you. Believe by just simple faith in my finished work as your substitute on the cross. If you will accept my offer, I will make the appeal to the judge on your behalf. Will you trust me? Will you believe in me? Will you allow me to be your Lord and your Savior? Will you accept me and let me in? And the defendant might say something like this. I can hardly believe all of this. How would you do this for me? I am overcome by such love. Never before have I heard or known of such love. Oh, dear Jesus, I'm an unworthy sinner standing condemned before this holy judge but i'm also overcome by your words i repent of my sins right now choosing rather to believe you and to follow you would you forgive me jesus smiles at her and then he turns to the judge and he says holy father This defendant realizes she's guilty of all charges and condemned to die. She has pled guilty. Yet, dear holy and righteous judge, may I approach the bitch? And as Jesus nears the Father, he simply rolls up his sleeves. He simply rolls up his sleeves and shows his wrist and he says father remember your covenant by blood i paid this defendant's death penalty already i hung on that cross i died in her place receive my payment on her behalf and acquit her of all charges is my plea And the judge, holding the gavel, says, I have made my verdict. Slams the gavel down. Anna Jerome, you are acquitted of all charges and free to go in peace. Hallelujah. Prosecutor's upset, of course, but Anna's rejoicing. Jesus might speak to her a little bit more, and he might say, Hey, listen, the person that brought you here, guess what? They're waiting for you in the foyer. There's a whole group of them there, and it's called the church. And guess what? If you join up with them, they're going to help you. They're going to help you. They're going to welcome you because you know what? Every one of them was sitting in that seat too at one point. Every one of them was sitting there, and I made the same plea for every one of them. So they're not going to condemn you. They're going to welcome you. They're going to accept you, and they're going to say, Hey, come, let's go with us, become a part of us, and let's do this thing together, and let's walk this path together, and let's grow in the light of the Lord together, and we'll help you. We'll teach you, we'll pray for you, we'll love you, we'll encourage you, we'll help you learn the Word, we'll show you the light of God's Word that will help you walk this path and stay out of this place and stay out of sin because we're doing it together. Come join with us. That's the job of the church. It's not just to shine the light, to draw them to Christ but it's also to do life together, and walk in the light together. That's what the church is all about. That's the church's job. And we get that from studying the menorah. That's what the lampstand's all about. And I don't wanna ever take my position or my job lightly, because if there's any person sitting in this building or hearing me on this tape that does not know that they've made that commitment that this fictitious woman did in this story and that have given their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, be my Savior. Will you plead my case before that judge and stand in my place? I receive that death sentence you did for me. If there is anyone in this building or hearing me on this tape, I got good news for you. You can do that right now. Wherever you are, sitting in this seat, we will pray with you. Pastor Todd or I will walk you and show you Jesus Christ. But my job is to introduce you to him. And my job is to help you to let's walk this thing out and let's do it together and let's live for his honor and let's live pleasing to him and let's shine the light to the world and to each other to help each other along the path. Father, in Jesus' name, I love you, Lord. And I just commit this word to you. I pray in Jesus' name that if there is anyone in this building that needs to know you, or anyone who hasn't made that commitment yet, I'm asking you to move by the power of the Holy Spirit on their heart and draw them to you. Help them, help the church, help us all to love them, to welcome them, to shine the light on their path. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be the church to shine the light everywhere we go and everywhere you would call us at all times of the day or night, that our lights would never burn out. And God, I pray for us to lead people to Christ and then welcome them in and help them to live for you. I pray, God, that you will draw any to you that need to be drawn to you this night. So that that is settled in their heart. And that you will encourage your saints by this word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Lord bless you.